Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 80th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Alex Song, founder and CEO at the Innovation Department. Simply put, the Innovation Department is a company that builds companies. In their Soho studio, their team of brand strategists, builders, marketers, and operators are focused on reducing the time to product market fit and generating success as efficiently as possible. And they don't just turn ideas into companies, they invest in them too. The Innovation Department has incubated companies like Dojo Mojo, where Alex is actually the CEO, Wellpath, Wine Awesomeness, and others. Sample investments include well-known tech companies such as Lyft, Dropbox, Pinterest, and more. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Alex's background and what he learned from being an investment banker, all about the Innovation Department and how their playbook helps them launch companies, Lots of details on Dojo Mojo and how they're helping clients with customer acquisition efforts. Advice on how to balance communicating with consumers and what he means by the 70-30% split between content and commerce. His contrarian point of view on Amazon and why it should be such an important part of a new brand strategy, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. We have published lots of great podcast interviews with the top founders and investors across the New York tech scene. And we have some great episodes coming up, so make sure you subscribe. But if there is someone that should be on our show, please send an email to info at We're always looking to hear recommendations of great founders or investors that we should be interviewing. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Alex. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I always like to go way back when I talk to people. It's actually the first question I ask folks is, um, so, so let's talk about you kind of growing up. So, so where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? Sure thing. So I was born in Los Angeles, California. Grew up on the West Coast my first 18 years of my life. Uh, went to school over in Northern California at UC Berkeley. Uh, parents growing up, they were, my father was actually a serial entrepreneur. Uh, interesting enough, he was an electrical engineer by background, uh, emigrated over in the early 80s, and he was actually the first inventor of the design for a 14.4 kilobyte modem. So if you think about the old dial-ups, yeah. he was the first one to actually reach that speed, which is really wow. innovative. He was uh, in PC Magazine. He still has this fun picture where he's holding the modem and showing it off at a young That's age. That's so cool. Yeah, and it's, it's been really interesting. I think a lot of my personal education and, and passion for business has stemmed from his own experience. And, you know, I think he took that invention and, and maybe ran into a little bit issues when he realized just having the design didn't mean that he could scale the manufacturing of the design. Sure. And that's kind of the path that he took initially. He was kind of building in telecommunications. And then over time, he started a new business that focuses on financial software for banks in the compliance and regulatory space. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. entrepreneurship is in the blood. Yeah, definitely. Learned a lot from him. Continue to as well. No. So you uh, obviously um, at UC Berkeley uh, after graduation, what, did you, what were kind of like the first jobs out of school? Yeah. So, you know, in the early 2000s, the, or sorry, yeah, the early 2000s, I graduated in 2004, the cool jobs were kind of like the consulting and investment banking jobs for our, us business school students. Sure. And uh, I pursued the investment banking route. I'd always kind of had this interest in finance and I was really lucky. I got an internship uh, my junior year at Goldman Sachs in their investment banking group. 
uh, came out to New York City, fell in love with the place, uh, decided I had to you know, move to New York City or no matter what, uh, and then took a job with Goldman, got the full-time offer, and came out here to, to do the whole investment banking analyst program, sleeping under my desk, you know, 100 hours a week, that whole fun thing. And then, and then at some point, you decided to um, go back to business school, right? I actually didn't. You know, I, I took a different route. Um, I stayed in finance. Uh, I was lucky to get promoted into a group called the Principal Investment Area after my two years in the analyst program for investment banking. And that was a private equity group. That was Goldman's $20 billion uh, large cap uh, private equity fund. And it was a really great time to be there because it was 2006, 2007, going into 2008, 2009. And, you know, I saw the, the rise of basically every single deal, you know, being able to, you know, acquire all these interesting businesses to take them private. And then soon after, with 2008 hitting with Lehman, Bear Stearns, all that craziness, uh, a lot of opportunities because we were flushed with cash, we were able to just buy a very, you know, a variety of very interesting assets in all parts of the capital structure. And then from there, I kind of went on, you know, at that point, I really did think about business school, um, was very seriously considering it, but I just felt like there was such opportunity and momentum in my career path that I decided to move over into the hedge fund, uh, the buy side world. Uh, I joined a fund called Pershing Square, which is Bill Ackman's uh, fund, famous uh, activist investor, and was there with him for a few years learning, uh, you know, how to do public investing from an activist perspective. So what do you think that taught you just kind of the foundational years of your career, that experience? And, you know, obviously it's hard work, but you learn a ton. So what do you think that taught you? Yeah, I think on the intangible side, I think the first thing I always go back to is it really taught me resilience. Um, I think that when you have to work in these kind of very intense corporate environments from a young age, um, you build this resilience and, and, you know, it's almost like resistance training in a way, right? Suddenly you're like, I know how to go really deep. I know how to do very detailed analysis and I know how to put in that very, you know, difficult uh, and time intensive work to make it happen. Um, I think another intangible that it really brought upon me was discipline because I think, you know, particularly, you know, not to make myself sound old, but, you know, I think the discipline is something that if you're able to spend that time early on and build that into, you know, your principles and the way that you approach your work ethic, it's super powerful because it gives you that ability anytime you need it. And particularly in the startup world, you know, you really need those attributes. Um, as far as skill set and kind of the more expertise side, having a sound financial background as an investor through both the private kind of larger business side and then moving into the public side, it really helped hone my skills as an investor. Like I have a, a deep understanding of what makes a good business, looking for certain trends, business opportunities, capital intensity, and it's made me identify uh, strengths and weaknesses and the opportunities I see. And it's also helped me think about the business models that are going to be very successful and how to actually build businesses better now that I'm on the building side versus the investing side. So is it a, like, is it, do you think it's a, like a good career path? Like I'm sure people are still deciding, you know, entrepreneurship yep. is in vogue and going to a startup is in vogue versus yep. management consulting and the investment banking. So do you think if you were, you know, advising someone who's coming out of their undergraduate to pursue that type of, you know, more, you know, 
investment banking career path as a foundation layer? A hundred percent. You know, again, it's for me, maybe a little bit biased because I chose that path. But what I recognize is very valuable is it's really hard to go from a smaller business into a bigger business because the culture aspects, the fit, understanding how the resources work and just the general kind of professionalism that's expected in different environments just changes, right? It's, it's cultural in many different organizations. I think going from bigger to smaller is a much easier transition because you take these skill sets and you take this knowledge that has been very much built into the training programs of these larger organizations and it just sets you up for a better transition and longer term success. These big businesses are around for a reason, right? They understand what an A looks like. They understand what it, it takes to be successful quarter after quarter, year after year. And I think seeing what that looks like first and then moving into an early stage environment just sets you up for a better understanding of how to build towards that success. Well, let's fast forward to, you know, what you're up to today. Sure. Uh, so what is innovation department? And I guess, you know, as a continuation of what we we're just talking about, what led you down the path to create this? Yeah. So uh, Innovation Department is a startup studio based here in New York City. Uh, we're based in lower Manhattan, Soho. We got 6,000 square feet and several companies working out of our offices. Uh, what's really exciting about the way this came about uh, is that when I first started uh, looking at opportunities after I had kind of finished my time in finance, I knew I wanted to do something early stage. You know, my my entrepreneurial spirit, as I mentioned, you know, through the upbringing, you know, watching my dad be a serial entrepreneur had always been there, but I knew that I was a good investor. I didn't really think I was a great operator. And what I started doing in the beginning, having left the hedge fund and with you know, a little bit of capital, I was able to start doing some angel investing and I would actually go to different businesses across different industry types and, you know, be a seed investor or an early stage investor. But my deal was, not only will I write the check, but you have to let me spend a few hours a week in your offices just doing work for you in any part of whatever you need. You know, you have someone that's, you know, a former finance person, you know, willing to do whatever is asked for free. So I would go to these businesses and I'd spend my time there and I'd learn like, oh, wow, like this is how accounts receivable is being collected. Um, this is how uh, product is being product decisions are being made. This is what the marketing team is doing. And soon enough, I realized that all of these businesses had similar needs and resources that were they were counting on. But because they're so early stage, they're all very limited. So I started identifying, you know, certain expertise. For example, I found a really good product designer, and through one of my investments actually. And then I would keep this person engaged with me full time and say, all right, I'm gonna deploy you into these different projects that I need. I know my portfolio companies need and the expense that normally someone, a consultant or a freelancer, you know, who would mark up their time would now be mitigated because I'm, I'm hiring this person full time. And I would keep them very busy because there's just so much work to do. I did the same thing with engineers. I did the same thing with marketers and operators. And soon enough, I started building what would look like an incubator with kind of resources and services before I even knew what that meant. I just kind of instinctively understood that that was the business model that was going to make sense to support these early stage businesses. Then in 2015, you know, I was able to find this really amazing space here and I started inviting these uh, 
portfolio companies, which were, you know, struggling to find desks at WeWork and whatnot. So I'll work here. And, you know, I gave them a, you know, low cost rent. Um, I gave them access to my resources at cost. And then soon enough, I was building and partnering with these businesses and helping them accelerate and get to their next stage of growth. Very cool. So yeah. how many companies are in your space now? Right now we have five. And what's nice is it's actually matured in a way where initially in 2015, when we moved in these businesses, they all had an individual founding teams and kind of had already hired full-time people and structured you know, their teams to be prepared to scale. What I ended up seeing was that our core team of operators, engineers, designers, marketers, were getting stronger and stronger by helping these different teams, uh, different portfolio companies on their projects, that they were all itching to innovate and build businesses on their own, as was I. So then what we started doing is actually building new businesses, transforming these ideas from scratch, and actually creating our own set of businesses that our team was operating and running. And how do you decide what to focus on? Like, like, you know, idea generation, like what markets or industries would you identify and obviously start to build a, like a product around? How, how would you figure that out? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think the first layer for us is that, you know, we like to invest and build things that we're familiar with and comfortable with and, and, you know, understand. And I think, to date, what we've been successful in is, is in the consumer technology space or consumer products that are tech enabled. Uh, we take a platform approach, meaning through the time that we were supporting these different portfolio companies with their own teams, we started aggregating a lot of information into what we call a playbook. And these are strategies and tactics and learnings and resources and information that has become a proprietary resource for us because it's been tested and tried through many different uses and now are the best of the best of our past four years of building businesses. The second thing we did was that we made a concerted effort to really address acquisition for our early stage businesses. And that's where we actually built an internal technology called Dojo Mojo, which is a partnership network of 6,000 brands that today are messaging and meeting each other, much like on LinkedIn, but they're marketers with a very clear purpose of trying to find other brands to partner with and then do collaborative audience growth. And we built this originally as an internal tool just to kind of help facilitate what was happening uh, for our brands to more quickly and easily acquire customers soon enough different partners that were using our internal technology were offering to pay for it. And that's when we realized, whoa, we have an actual business here. <laughs> that type of acquisition, partnership acquisition is super efficient because rather than paying for, let's say Facebook or Instagram traffic, you're actually just going out and bartering your audience with someone else's audience. And therefore your ROI is extremely high, right? Cause the cash invested is really low. We started doing that and now it's scaled into many different partnership types and has allowed us anytime we launch a new business to use our own software to make sure that we acquire customers and get the traffic to show up and these new sites that we build for these new products because you know we like to joke internally that there's this field of dreams fallacy 
you know, Kevin Costner in the movie says, if you, or he hears the voice and it says, if you build it, they will come. We learn very quickly, if you build it, they won't come. <laughs> we need our own version to kind of drive traffic there. And that's where Dojo Mojo has been really impactful to help accelerate our brand building. That, and yeah, acquisition is such a challenge for, uh, you know, companies and founders. So I was definitely want to get into the weeds of that some more. So, so how does Dojo Mojo actually work? Uh, maybe like a, an example of one of your, you know, uh, companies that uh, you're incubating, you know, yeah. how they leverage that network. Sure. So one of our businesses called WellPath is a nutritional supplements business. And what they did early on and what we did as a company is we committed to kind of Mary Meeker's three C's, which is community, uh, commerce, and content. And building that internally, we have a content team that actually creates a bunch of amazing content. We were then able to go out and create a media arm for that consumer business. And using that media side of the business, we were able to then go out and acquire a lot of uh, customers and, and, and subscribers through these types of partnerships. We were partnering with, you know, Condé Nast Publications, Hearst Communications, The Skim. We've been on a bunch of different partnership types with them. And what we're able to do is create a campaign where we are all kind of promoting a collaborative, let's say, you know, amazing trip somewhere or some sort of collaborative event that someone is putting together for people to attend. And we promote it and say, hey, look, you can be a part of this or you can enter to win this trip. All you need to do is to submit this email, uh, your email and your details, maybe answer a few questions, and then also agree that as part of us sponsoring this trip, we're going to communicate with you. You can always unsubscribe, but that became a really efficient way for businesses to actually grow and scale their audience. Now, that's been kind of the first layer of what we're doing. Now, fast forward over the past two years, we've created an entire marketplace where brands are directly paying and transacting with each other to promote each other's brands through our platform, which is really exciting. And this is called the media marketplace. And again, it all came out of necessity, right? We didn't have, you know, millions of dollars raised to do a bunch of paid channel acquisitions. You know, I find I've had difficulty kind of finding the best in class growth marketers. I mean, I've met a, a bunch of great ones, but you know, growth marketers are these days highly sought after. And I didn't have, you know, that amazing resource internally. So we built tech to kind of figure out a way that we can generate our own acquisition. And I think now today, what's most exciting is the way this, this platform is working is there's actually a recommendation engine built behind it. Once you do one of these campaigns, we learn about, who your audience is, and then understand based on our whole world of 6,000 brands, which audiences are going to work best with yours. And then we start almost like a dating app, start recommending brands to work together. And that's been a really powerful way to find the right partner very quickly because discovering the right partner is half the battle. And in the, in the past, you had to do it on LinkedIn and message and email and hope that you found the right person. Now they're all sitting on our platform, which has been a really beneficial way to, to grow our audience. Yeah, that's a, uh, like acquisition so hard. And one of the concerns that, you know, I just recognize, um, you know, that I hear from founders is you, know, you can spend, right? And that, if that spigot is flush with cash, you're going to grow. But as soon as that spigot's off, you know, your you know, traffic or acquisition is going to just plummet. 
So yeah. um, you know, you're always raising capital to spend more, right? Just to keep that growth cycle going. But if you yeah. <laughs> don't raise another round, you're kind of uh, caught, caught in a tough situation. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, recent blogs out there about this, but you know that sort of VC um, game of musical chairs, mm -hmm. or slightly more negative Ponzi scheme, right? So you that's know, that's the conversation. One of the I, I saw. Well, what's his name? Who was talking about that? Uh, I think it's a guy from Social Capital. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, I saw that his interview, and it's uh, it kind of resonated. I'm like, it kind of makes sense because you just keep outspending to exactly as long as you could keep raising more money in that game you're going to be okay but if you're the one left holding the bag when the music stops i think it becomes a real issue and, and that's part of our own kind of you know you asked this question earlier about how my finance background has impacted the way in which we build you know something very specific to us is like we don't want to just build based on raising capital right? Because capital efficiency is the name of the game. And I think that today ideas have become more and more commoditized and you really need a, a differentiated unfair advantage to actually strengthen your ability to build in a way that's unique and, and differentiated and proprietary. And I think having this access to this acquisition engine, which is Dojo Mojo and all this amazing partnership traffic that allows us to optimize and test and get closer to product market fit without actually spending the same amount of money. I like to say to the team when we do some analysis between businesses that we produce internally versus VC backed businesses in the more traditional sense, you know, our dollar is worth another VC company's $3 because we have these proprietary assets. We have this playbook of knowledge and it makes us more efficient and accurate in terms of how we build businesses. Now, once you have a customer, you know, retention's the other key piece. So what, what have you found to be an effective way to maintain that relationship with a consumer? Is it through an email channel or other channel? Like what, what have you found to be effective there? Yeah, you know, email's uh, continuing to be one of the strongest uh, channels for us. Uh, I was reading this uh, blog or old interview from uh, the, the CEO of Slack and he kind of joked and said email will be the cockroach of the internet meaning like you'll never kill it <laughs> and, and like if you think about it everything that we're recovering uh, all our password recoveries and you know every time we sign up for something new it's always based on email so we know mm -hmm. email is not going away anytime soon unless we plan not to have any applications on our phones um, and I also think Email for us is just something that's really the best way to own the relationship directly with the customer because there's no platform that's blocking you and there's no one saying, hey, you can or you can't do this. And there's no, you know, algorithm that may or may not put you in the right light. You know, I think that's a big part of retention. And I think something very important for retention is trust and kind of that brand equity that's being created. And we've taken the approach of doing that through a very concerted content strategy. We don't want to just have content out there for the sake of content. We want to build trust. We want to be a voice, a thought leader. And then as that happens, you know, we have this golden rule internally where we try to aim for 70% content, 30% commerce in terms of our commu communications so that you're not being bombarded by sales and promotions and discounts where we're trying to get you to give you money. We're actually just trying to give you a lot of information that's valuable most of the time. And then when the opportune time comes and we've built that trust, 
we won't mind taking your money, but we want to make sure that that trust is already established. And that's been really helpful for us on the retention side. And what's the goal for these companies? Is it to you know, get them to a point of scale where they raise an institutional round of venture capital funding or maybe just you know, stay bootstrapped and scale if they can from there? Yeah, so you know, because of our internal platform approach, we actually are one of the few startup studios that, that advocate a dual-pronged approach. And those two paths are the following. There's a traditional VC-backed model, which is you know, if we kill it and we get to product market fit really quickly and we think the total addressable market is huge, then we can go out and raise around. And, and also, actually, I forgot to mention, we keep a, a very extensive network of founders and entrepreneurs, MBA students that are looking to lead another new idea that's already kind of proven and has the right KPIs and metrics. And then they can kind of fit in to take forward whatever our business is. We bring in capital, raise it with them in terms of the leaders of that opportunity, and that becomes a VC back path. Another thing we do with the consumer product side, because we've leveraged Amazon in a very big way and kind of how we grow and build our, our revenue stream early on and making them a huge partner for us, we can actually grow once we reach about two to $3 million, we're cash flow positive as a business. And it's very rare for an early stage business to be cash flow positive at that level. So we then have a choice if we don't think this is the VC backed opportunity, unlike other VC firms that would basically say, all right, time to shut that thing down. We say, that's totally fine. Let's operate it. Let's run it. And let's use the cash flow from that to fuel more initiatives and growth in the portfolio approach. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you brought up Amazon. So yeah. many people are, uh, you know, just adamant that Amazon is, um, you know, destroying businesses instead of helping them. Right. Sure. Uh, you know, they're the 800 pound gorilla, actually probably much greater than an 800 pounder by now. Uh, they can chew up anything and spit it out the other end and do it much better, faster, cheaper, whatever. So yeah. what, what's your point of view on Amazon? <laughs> I like your mention of the 800 pound gorilla because funny enough, I was just thinking about, you know, what Amazon is. And I recently was really fortunate to be invited on a trip to Rwanda where I went gorilla trekking and I met an 800 pound gorilla. Wow. And my analogy is this. When I went and saw these 800 pound silverback gorillas, they were surrounded by 30 different gorillas in a very unique familial structure. And my takeaway from that and what you described with Amazon is that there's so many opportunities to partner and be within an ecosystem where you take the strength of the 800 pound gorilla and you actually live and flourish in that environment through the benefits that that 800 pound gorilla provides in Rwanda, safety and all that great stuff. On Amazon, it's the traffic, right? It's the knowledge that you get from actually putting your product on Amazon. This is something that I think is not really obvious to new brands that are starting. People like to criticize Amazon because they hold the customer data very closely to their chest. They don't want you to take the customer data. They want to pre pre you know, prevent their customers from any privacy concerns. So you end up feeling like you, know, you might have all these great sales, but you have no connection and no opportunity to retain that relationship with your customers for Amazon. However, I would tell you that when you launch a new product, 
the feedback loop is so important to get you to product market fit that we end up putting all these surveys where you like, we'll give you an Amazon gift card. If you answer these questions, you know, did you like this product? Did you not MPS scores, all that great stuff. Amazon's this really interesting ecosystem where every customer on there has seen reviews, understands how reviews work and are very often inclined to provide the reviews. So if you see early on that you're launching something, you have this amazing built-in feedback loop where your customers can communicate with you and therefore you can be very smart about the decisions you're making for your product in terms of how you're evolving it, how you're selling it, how you're marketing it. And that communication is super important. I think the second part of, about Amazon that's very valuable for us is Amazon gives a lot of credit to businesses that accelerate and have velocity. They end up putting you higher in your search ranks, just like how Google does with you know higher backlink rate rankings and such like that. What we end up doing is because we maintain our audience um, through all this content strategy I mentioned earlier, we actually drive audience that otherwise we could drive to our direct to consumer website, we drive it to Amazon, mm -hmm. right? We actually want our customers to go purchase our items on Amazon because that ends up helping our ranking. It accelerates Amazon's view of us as a customer. They're happy because they're getting more sales from us. We're happy because it accelerates the ranking of what we see happening. And then therefore, as our ranking goes higher in the search terms, we get a lot more organic traffic from Amazon, right? And that's something that's, important to think about because then if I drove the, the customer there, that means I have a direct channel to communicate with them. I benefit from all the new organic traffic that's coming from Amazon, but I'm not worried that I don't have a communication opportunity or channel with the existing customers I have, right? I can continue to kind of balance the two together and it makes for a really great early stage strategy for launching brands. That's great advice. Cause I was going to ask you like, you know, the, Amazon is the ocean. So how do you optimize and, and find ways to, you know, as an early stage brand, be successful on Amazon? So that's really helpful advice. Yeah, it's, it's been really useful. One other quick point uh, to answer that would be today, if you look on Amazon, they've actually built a lot, new, lot more opportunity and flexibility for you to let your brand shine, uh, whether that's through enhanced brand content, whether that's through more images and details. And if you actually invest in it, you can really differentiate the way that your product looks versus the next competitor out there because most Amazon competitors don't think about brand building. They think about it as, hey, this is a place where I can you know, use a distribution channel to sell products. But we actually take the approach of looking at it as, a place where we can really let people learn about our brand, discover our brand, and naturally what happens, I mean, we do the, the, the searching of the links and, and the stats, we see so much traffic go from Amazon to our direct-to-consumer sites because people are discovering us there and then trying to learn more about who we are because of how much investment we put into the brand itself on Amazon. Got it. Okay. Now the other thing that uh, your company does is actual investing. So if you look at your website, you have an investment portfolio that's very impressive with companies like Pinterest and Lyft, Dropbox, ClassPass and others. So like, how do you make the decision to, you know, actually make your own investment outside of incubating, you know, like how do those investment opportunities come about? Sure. Great question. I think for us, you know, 
we're fortunate that a lot of these investments have come through our network, whether it was my time back in the finance world and now the alumni of Goldman are spread all over Silicon Valley. Um, I also think that there's these really great opportunities I see where the investment also comes because I want to get access and get closer to a founding team. I feel like, you know, I recognize they're really smart and I think that there's certain opportunities that they're pursuing that I love to be able to better understand. And often the capital investment, although they're all really great investments and I hope for a fantastic financial return, a lot of them have also been to get access to the education, the knowledge and the experience that those founding team members have had. And then I'm able to take that information and, and expertise and bring that back into the businesses that I'm building. And also a lot of those founders are now people that I call upon as advisors and even some I would consider mentors that guide me on what I'm doing. Well, the uh, tech scene in New York is thriving. There's so much going on in so many different industries and categories. Um, are there two companies that are on your radar that you're like, wow, what they're doing is really, really special? In the New York scene specifically? Yes. Sure. Um, look, I've been a longtime fan of the Skim because they were one of our first users on Dojo Mojo. And, you know, I think uh, what they're doing has been, you know, really fantastic to kind of innovate within a media space that generally people feel like is a slowly diminishing industry. They've come in and, and grown such an incredible um, you know, subscriber and audience and, and really differentiate the way in which they communicate with their audience. And I think that's really innovative and exciting. And I know that they're, you know, doing better than ever. And, you know, I continue to really be admired, admiring their success. Um, you know, I think another business that uh, I recently learned about that, which I think is really exciting is a company called Assembly Brands, which is kind of doing similar things to us in terms of the startup studio space. Um, they've built um, some really great businesses. One is called Wild Ones, which is like a pets oriented brand business. It's a kind of high end luxury pet products. Um, I think another one of them, their products is focusing on like a luxury ish item that does like really fast charging of your phones. I mean, how many times do we all feel like our phones are about to run out of energy? And what I like about them is they take a similar platform approach that we do, which is they see the value of having this portfolio live together and kind of have that rising tide lifts all boats mentality of having all of these brands in one house. And, you know, I recently met the founders and I felt that, you know, they were you know, really sharp guys, you know, they take a lot of uh, their background from their own experiences and entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think they're doing really cool stuff. And I'm excited for their success, because I feel like that further demonstrates that the startup studio model has a lot of momentum and opportunity. Those are two great examples. Yeah, like the skim I've, I've been a subscriber for a long time now. And I still, you know, every day, I, I, I count on that thing just to keep, you know, it's just, yeah, no, it's, it's witty. It's punchy. It's you witty, know. Yeah. It's just, it, get, it tells me what I need to know. It, it dummies certain topics down for me yeah. to make it simple. So um, I think they've also acquired maybe the top five most audience out of Dojo Mojo ever. Wow. Yeah. They're up there. And when we look at our top rankings, I won't say exactly how much, but they're definitely in our top five of, of total active acquisitions. So how do you manage your time? You're involved in so many different things, companies and, you know, investments. So, so what, what's like, how does your 
week look? I'm sure it fluctuates every single week. It's not the same, but like, how do you manage your time or any like tips yeah. that you share for others on, on productivity hacks? Sure thing. You know, I remember listening to an interview that Jack Dorsey did, um, you know, CEO of Square, you know, founder of Twitter. And one thing he did, which I thought was really interesting, was to try to categorize your days so that you know, you're minimizing switching costs. Um, it's incredibly important for me when I'm trying to not only run the platform of innovation department as a whole, but also portfolio companies, you know, specifically something like Dojo Mojo, which, you know, I am the CEO of as well. Right. So figuring out how to segregate, you know, the time and the meetings that you have in terms of focusing on the right topics for those days, I try to do my best. It's not a hundred percent, but I, I do categorize them. And for example, on Mondays, it's generally leadership. Um, meeting with leadership teams, having kind of more strategic discussions around what needs to happen, getting updates at that level. Um, then on uh, Tuesdays, we really focus on a lot of reporting metrics, KPIs, you know, really digging into the data, so to speak, across all the different portfolio companies and initiatives. Wednesdays, you know, are a day where I actually do a lot of recruiting. That's maybe my like, you know, big interview recruiting day. I'm, you know, game face. I'm in full selling mode. So I just keep that on all day. It's really helpful. Uh, Thursdays is a lot of internal one-on-ones. I spend time on an individual level. Um, it's a lot of kind of like operational things, figuring out what needs to be done internally. And then Fridays I leave is kind of a, you know, whatever didn't get done gets done type day. And I think that's been able to kind of help me catch up on the week. I always try to block out a little time just to make sure that whatever was important that's sitting on my Trello or whatnot, it gets actually handled. Um, and that's kind of how I've, I've had more success in terms of managing, you know, my week to week. That's a, that's good feedback. It's definitely something to help out because, uh, just the volume of work just doesn't slow. It just only increases. So to have it, you know, different days of different focus is uh, definitely something I need to probably Im- implement as well. Yeah. Well, f- federal holidays like this Monday end up throwing me for a loop, but <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> we it out. well, Alex, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing your background and all the great stuff that you guys are up to and the different portfolio companies you guys are building and obviously the great pieces of advice. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. And this has been a really fun experience and I'm excited uh, for what's to come. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.